Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you for the worship and focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. I must say, when you sit at the front, there's something about the worship that has a whole other level of dynamic in terms of the volume and the passion with which you worship the Lord. And so it was neat for us to kind of sit off to the side, but up at the front and just hear you singing it out to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always a special time to be here at Iberega the Baptist Camp. And part of that is our time together in worship in these chapel sessions. So I want to say thank you to Pastor Phil and to Pastor Dave for the great opportunity to be able to open the scriptures with you this week. We're looking forward to following that theme of writing for the brand. I've tried to put the messages together that the Lord laid on my heart that fit with that theme throughout the week. I want to take a a few minutes to introduce our family to you. I think that you may know some of them, depending on how long uh, you've been coming to Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. This place has been special to our hearts since I first stepped foot here uh, from from as a freshman in Bible college on a traveling team for Faith Baptist Bible College in 1989. So that was my first time coming here. Most of, much of this wasn't here then, uh, but our family's been really plugged into IRBC ever since then in a variety of capacities. So let me introduce, first of all, dead center on my right-hand side there is my beautiful wife of 33 years, sweetheart of 38 years, and I'm so thankful for her. Our first, by the way, our first unofficial date was at a camp in Minnesota, okay? So that's how important camping is to us. It set the course for the whole rest of our lives together. I say unofficial because we broke my mom and dad's or her mom and dad's rules because we weren't 16 yet, but did a camp banquet. Remember those days when every senior high camp had a camp banquet? And so I asked her out, long story, story short, but uh, God's blessed us with four wonderful children, three daughters and a son, and we now have three sons-in-law, soon to have a daughter-in-law, and two grandbabies. So let me introduce them to you quickly this morning. You may recognize the guy on the left-hand side with the beard. He is our son-in-law, Eric. He was on staff here for three years with our daughter, Ellen. And so they, they staffed here for three years. And then the Lord called them to Alaska, where he's been a camp director up there for the last several years at Higher Ground Baptist Bible Camp. And so He has stepped away from that, but they're still serving the Lord there. And they blessed us with these two adorable little granddaughters. I know there are a lot of cute kids here this week. All right, lots of cute kids this week, but ours is the cutest. I'm just saying. Emery and Ensley, I'm not biased. All right, that's Emery and Ensley. And they just actually turned five and two. So we're thankful for them. And then on the other side of the picture is our second board, and that's Tori and her husband, Temi. And Tori, again, she was a summer staffer all through high school and worked here as well. Uh, Tammy and her both attended camp here uh, as, as teenagers as well, but they met through a campus ministry at Iowa State University. She was a student at Faith. He was a student at Iowa State, and the Lord uh, led them together, and they're now serving in campus ministry in the Twin Cities up there as a part of a church plant campus ministry type of ministry on the St. Paul side of the Twin Cities. Tammy's working on seven or eight different college campuses Reaching Collegiates for Christ, and it's really exciting to see what God is doing through them and through their ministry. Uh, no kids yet, but we're begging, okay? We're begging, and uh, we're hoping and begging all that. You could join me if you want to join me in prayer and asking God to bless. No, just kidding. But, uh, and then our third born is in the back, and uh, she's with her husband. Uh, she married her high school sweetheart a little over a year ago, and they're the only of our four kids that stayed in Ohio, where we live and serve at this point at least. And so um, not that we're only going to live and serve there at this point. I mean, it's our, our children, okay? <laughs> I want to make sure you understood what I was saying there. Uh, so our kids, we have one that uh, stayed in Ohio, and uh, they live just five miles down the road from us, so it's great to have them close by. 
And then last summer, I spoke at Family Camp One, and one of the things I discovered while speaking at Family Camp One is that I uh, found out that people didn't really know me as me, they just knew me as Carson's dad, all right? So the kid in the back row is a contender from the last two years, not this year. Actually, he and Ken are are here today with us. And so I'm Carson's dad. (laughs) My wife is Carson's mom. And uh, and, uh, they are getting married in 13 days. So 13 days, uh, two weeks from yesterday. And we're super excited to have a daughter-in-law, and we're super excited that the Lord's blessed Carson and us with Kenna, and we're so thankful that they drove up from Ankeny this morning to be here with us. And then, uh, no pictures, sorry, mom, but my mom is here as well. She drove down from Minnesota. She lives just outside of Rochester, Minnesota, and so she drove down this morning. She actually served for over a decade in a camp. Uh, Ironwood Springs Christian Ranch in uh, southeastern Minnesota, and she was the food service director and hospitality coordinator for that camp. And so camp has kind of been a part of her life as well as a part of our life, and it's great to have mom join us just for today as well. So we're thankful for the opportunity. We're thankful for what God does at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. You heard Pastor Dave share this morning just, just a few of the stories of how God uses his word when we get away from the world and just soak up the scriptures and how God uses that to transform our lives, all of our lives. Sometimes when we hear testimonies like that, we rejoice that God changed somebody else's life. But the reality of the matter is, is that God wants to change my life, that God wants to change your life, that God wants to change each and every one of our lives as we spend time saturated in the Word of God, and that's what we're looking forward to doing. The most important times at camp are the times in the chapels, the times in the devotions, the times where we open the Word of God and have God change us through His Word. And so I'm thankful for that and the opportunity to study Scripture together this week. If you have your Bibles there, please take them and turn with me and join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at a couple of verses. As I said earlier, we're going to do our best to kind of tie these together with this theme that I love, and you have already seen that from 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 in that very practical and challenging message that Pastor Dave shared in the Sunday School Hour. It's that idea of writing for the brand, writing for the brand. And Pastor Dave actually kind of revealed a little bit about me as well when he mentioned Louis L'Amour, because all I know about really about the West, the Old West, is all of those wonderful Louis L'Amour books that I've read over the years. I'm curious, is there anybody else in the room that has read a Louis L'Amour book? All right, raise your hand, be proud. Thank you, we got like an eight-year-old back there that likes Louis L'Amour. You are, you are way cool, son. You are way cool. How many of you have never read Louis L'Amour? Oh, that's, that's unreal. My mom reads Louis L'Amour. So some of you ladies are like, that's a guy thing, all right? It's not just a guy thing, but it, 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 he really is an, a masterful storyteller. That's probably the beauty of his writing more than anything is that you can find yourself like living there. Like all of a sudden you're transported to Wyoming. All of a sudden you're, you're transported to the, to the Southwest or someplace and you just kind of experience it firsthand. And so I'll admit I'm no cowboy. <laughs> I, I was born in Nebraska if that comes close, all right? Um, but, but I'm no cowboy. But at the same time, I, I think we understand this idea of, of writing for the brand and what a, what a brand is. Uh, what is a livestock brand after all? A brand is an expression of identity. It's an expression of identity, and it's also an expression of ownership. And so 
a brand is placed on a steer or on a calf, and that's the owner's way of saying that this is my livestock, all right? And every brand is distinct from another brand so that it distinguishes who it is that owns this animal, and it gives that animal a, a, a sense of identity in, in that way. I wanna, I'm going to spin and pivot a little bit on that this morning and, and use a little bit different idea of a brand and or a label in this regard. In, in, the, in the world of retail, so in a similar but a little bit different way, in the world of retail, it might be like a label, right? It might be like a label, and labels are designed to tell you something important about a product, right? I mean, especially the, the, the brand label, whether it's a Nike, whether it's an Adidas, whether it's a Ford, whether it's a Chevy, or whatever label you like. But there are also other kinds of labels. Labels are designed to tell you something important about a product, but sometimes labels can be confusing, especially things like safety warning labels. You ever get a kick out of what safety warning labels actually say, what some of them say? Let me give you some examples. So here's a safety warning label on a, of all things, a little letter opener that says this, for a letter opener, okay? Safety goggles recommended. I don't know about you, but I'm not whipping out my safety goggles. To put on my safety goggles is to open an envelope, right? I like this one. Hopefully the camp doesn't have this, but on a jet ski gas tank, on a jet ski gas tank, a warning label that read, never use a lit match or an open flame to check the fuel level. I mean, I can just see a guy opening, opening up the gas tank, right? On a jet ski and like lighting a match and looking down in there and boof, he's gone. He's done, right? He gone. That's a warning label on a jet ski of, of all things. Or a fishing lure. I like this safety label on a fishing lure. Harmful of swallowed. No duh, right? Here's one of my favorites. A toilet. Keyword, toilet, not tooth. Toilet brush. Warning, do not use for personal hygiene. <laughs> I can just see myself, <laughs> right? Trying to stuff a toilet brush in my mouth. Here's another good one, pepper spray, may irritate eyes. No <laughs> duh, right? May irritate eyes. For all you Minnesotans out there, how many Minnesotans are there in the crowd? Come on, be proud. Wow, you like dominate, way to go Minnesota, go Gophers, all right? Minnesotans, uh, this is for you. This is a snowblower warning label. The snowblower warning label says, do, label says, do not use snowblower on roof or on roof, depending on how you say it. I know, some of you Minnesotans are like, huh? What's wrong with that? You get a lot of snow in Minnesota, right? So you, you, maybe you've done that. Uh, perhaps my favorite of all and the last of all of them is this. It's a, it's a drain cleaner, all right? So a drain cleaner, and it's really, really specific. This is really important, the warning label on a drain cleaner. If you do not understand or cannot read all directions, cautions and warnings, do not use this product. Well, thank you very much. Since I couldn't read the warning in the first place, thank you for letting me know that I'm not supposed to use the product because obviously I'm, I, didn't, I wasn't able to read it. So sadly, those, those labels are really more confusing than they are helpful. And I want to say to you this morning, as we think about being branded and, and who we are in Christ and the label of Christianity, so to speak, on our life, that the way a Christian lives their life is like a label to the world. The way a Christian lives his or her life is like a, a label to the world. How you live, what you, what you say, what you do, how you react, 
All of those things read like a label to a watching world. And so let me ask you this question. What label can the world read on your life today? As you live your life in front of those who don't know Christ as their Savior, what label are they reading? Is it confusing? Is it even perhaps laughable in terms of you say you're this and you say you believe that, but you'll live in a different manner? Or does it clearly distinguish you as a follower of Jesus Christ? The way you live your life, does it shout, if you will, I'm a follower, I'm a disciple, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? Notice what our text says here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10 in relationship to that. It's describing who we are in Jesus Christ. Presuming that you're saved, and I know that's, that, that, that's a bad presumption on my, my part, but this is who it's addressing anyways, believers. And it says this about believers. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, and then don't miss the next phrase because that's the key to all of it. In order that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter here starts with a, with a contrast. He says, but. So in relationship to all these he's been saying so far, he says, but, but you are. And then he goes on to describe what we are. But the, the key that, to begin with that I want to focus on is the latter part of the verse where it says, in order that you may proclaim the praises of him. And the words that Peter uses there are, are packed with important information. It, that word that's probably in your, in your Bible version just simply says that is actually a, a clause that could better be translated in order that. And so we are all these, these four phrases, we are all these things, and we'll unpack that here this morning, but we are all those things for a purpose. And that purpose is found there when it says that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out. And I love the word that, that, that Peter uses here, this word proclaim. It's a word that is not found in the original. The Greek word is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. This is its exclusive occurrence in the New Testament. And it means this. It means to tell something not otherwise known. To tell something not otherwise known. So as you live out your Christian life, in accordance to your identity, who you are in Christ, we'll, we'll look at that here in a little bit, the design of that is that you would live in such a way that it reveals to other people the greatness of God, it proclaims the awesomeness of who God is through you living your life. Now I know it's important for us to, to speak the gospel and to, to express the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we also need to live the gospel. And so I like to think of it this way in terms of the big idea of what this text is teaching. It's this, that God wants us, God wants you to advertise how awesome he is by living up to who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. You put God on a, on a billboard, if I can put it that way. You display the, the awesome praises, how incredible and amazing God is by living out who he's made you to be, who he's made you to be in terms of your identity, how you've been branded, and you are to live up to who you are in Jesus Christ. Would you pause for a moment with me and pray as we look at those four just descriptions of who we are 
in Christ. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity to study it together this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the teacher of the word of God, that, that you would use the scripture to challenge and to change us. And Father, I pray too that you'd give us attentive hearts, attentive minds, even alert and awake minds and eager hearts to hear the word and then to leave here eager and excited and determined to then by your spirit do the word. And may that be our prayer and our desire throughout this entire week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four descriptions. Four descriptions of who we are in Jesus Christ so that we can live up to our identity and advertise the awesome nature of who God is. Number one, we're described here in verse nine, the beginning of the verse, as people who are selected by the Lord. Notice the phrase that is used here by Peter when he says at the beginning of verse nine, but you are a chosen generation. And I think this is important for us to understand because we need to go back to the very beginning in terms of the context of, of who Peter's writing to in 1 Peter. And so go with me to verse 1 of chapter 1 and notice the context when it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims, to the, to the foreigners, to the, to the vagrant people that are, that, are, that are almost spiritually homeless or scattered abroad is kind of the idea of this word of, of, of pilgrims. And then he says, of the dispersion in Pontus, and he describes an entire region that is now modern-day Turkey. And so he's describing these people that are in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And so in the context, he's writing to predominantly Jewish, but probably also Gentile Believers that have been dispersed, probably as a result of the persecution that's described in the book of Acts. And so imagine that you were originally from one place, and because of your Christian faith, you have been dispersed, you've been spread out. Imagine if, if everybody that's in the room here today, if because of persecution, we never again gathered at Iowa Regular Baptist Camp. Imagine if you were dispersed across the United States, maybe into Canada, maybe into other countries. Why? Because you had to in order for you to survive. And so it's that type of context to whom Peter is writing here. And notice how he then describes them, because I think knowing that context help us, helps us understand the power of what he's saying and the power of what God is saying to us who are also this. When he says, back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, when he says there at the beginning of the verse, you are a chosen generation. Someone who had no identity as a nation, he, he gives them identity that you, you are a chosen generation. So this statement had to have special meaning to them. And what Peter was doing here was he was borrowing lingo from the Old Testament. This very concept, the very ideas that he's, that he's writing of here are found in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 6 through 9 when, when God is speaking of the nation of Israel and why he has chosen them. And now it's in reference to, to New Testament believers and how God has chosen us. And so it gives us special meaning just to think about that. God had chosen them and God has chosen all believers. And it's vital for us to understand he, he doesn't choose us on the basis of our worthiness. He doesn't choose us on the basis of our merit. I love the way Pastor Day put it in Sunday school this morning <clears throat> when he said this about us. When, when you know who you are and when you know what you really like and when you know the depravity of your heart and when I know the depravity of my heart, I wouldn't choose me is the way he put it. And yet God chose me. And yet God chose you to be his child. 
I, I can't help but think back to when I was a kid growing up. And I don't know what it was like on, on your playground growing up, but I, I'm guessing it was probably like this on every playground growing up, is that you know, you'd have recess and it'd come time to pick the teams, right? And so if you were the kid that was chosen to be the captain and some other kids had chosen to be captain, who would you choose first? Right? You'd, you'd choose one of two things, okay? Depending if you really wanted to win. If you really wanted to win, who'd you choose? You'd choose the best kid, right? If you were really kind of relational, you'd choose your best friend, all right? Um, I always chose the best kid, just saying, all right? Uh, <laughs> And so you'd choose, you know, probably either your friends or, or the, the ones that were most, the most competitive. And so it'd be your turn, your turn, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then you'd finally come down to that one poor little kid that wasn't athletic at all, you know, that wasn't maybe even very popular or whatever. And, and, and the one cat would be like, you can have him. No, no, you can have him. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, he's an easy out. You, you, you get him. No, no, you get him type of thing, right? That kind of routine. Well, that's, that's what it's like with us spiritually. It's not like God looks out into the crowd and goes, man, that guy's popular. Man, that gal, she's talented. Oh, that, that person, they don't sin very much. <laughs> so I'm going to pick them. No, God chooses us despite our total unworthiness. And what a wonderful thing that is for us to realize who we are in Christ as those who have been selected by God who are totally unworthy of that. Totally unworthy of that. One writer describes it in these ways. These are not original ideas with me, but I think they're, they're worth repeating because as we look at salvation and we think about God choosing us, it ought to stir some things in our, in our hearts that God chose us. And by the way, I won't get into the whole, whole theological discussion of whether or not that was conditional or unconditional. You can probably already tell from what I've had to say that, that, uh, that I believe it's unconditional. That's my conviction. But if you have a different conviction, that's okay. We can talk for hours until 3 in the morning some night this week. But one writer puts it this way. He says, as you think about election, okay, as you think about election, there are at least five things that, that all of us ought to think about in, in relation to that. Number one, election is a pride-crushing truth. It is a pride-crushing truth. Why is that? Because it's all of God. Because God didn't choose me because I was wonderful. God chose me despite the fact that I was a wretch. And that is pride-crushing when I come to that realization. Number two, election and God's selection of, of a chosen generation is a God-exalting doctrine. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's a God-exalting doctrine. Number three, it is a holiness-promoting truth. When we are consumed with gratitude that God would choose us, that ought to produce in our lives a desire to obey and to please and to live a holy life for the one who chose us. So it is a holiness-promoting truth. Number four, it's a strength-giving truth. And that, and it, that it gives you a sense of peace. I mean, because after all, if I didn't cause myself to get saved, I don't have to keep myself saved. When it's God who chose me and when it's God who enabled me to believe, then it's not about my security based on me and my performance. It's based on him and his sovereign greatness. And then fifthly, it's a joy-producing truth. It's a joy-producing truth. The surest hope in all the world, if you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, is that your eternal security is a done deal, right? 
And what a wonderful thing that is. What wonderful joy and what wonderful peace that produces in the heart of the child of God to know that God has chosen us. We ought to be so grateful that he chose us that we want to do our very best for him. Think back to that kid on the playground. What if it's the last kid and the, and the captains don't go, no, you want him, no, you, you get him, no, no, I don't want him. And the captain instead just, just looks right at that last kid and says, you're on my team. You're on my team. I want you on my team, right? What is that kid going to do for the captain? He's going to do his very best. He's, he may not be the most athletic. He may not be the most talented. He may not be the most skilled. But he's going to do everything he can to, whether it's kick the kickball or dodgeball or, or softball, or whatever it is, he's going to do the very best he can because the captain chose him and wanted him. And in that very same sense, we ought to live our lives in such a manner that we want to please the one who chose us. And in doing so, what do you do? You advertise the awesomeness of your great God. We are selected by the Lord. Secondly, we're privileged by the Lord. Notice the next phrase that's used there in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Actually, if you look back in chapter 2 and verse 5, Peter introduces this very idea when he says this, that you are, you are a holy priesthood in the middle of verse 5. And so he's explaining a, a special relationship of, of privilege. Uh, and, and again, this, this had special significance to them as a scattered people, perhaps number of, a number of them with a Jewish background. And Peter is using a phrase similar to that that is found in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, where the Bible says, in relationship to the nation of Israel, you shall be, a, be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so I want us this morning to unpack this a little bit so we make sure we understand this concept of the priesthood of the believer. You know, as Baptists, that's one of our Baptist distinctives that we emphasize is the priesthood of the believer. What exactly does that mean? Well, in simple terms, to be a priest is to be someone who represents humans, other human beings, before God. The Old Testament concept of a priest and the sacrifices Make that clear. And I want to take a few minutes to go to Hebrews chapter 10 because I think Hebrews chapter 10 explains that to us. And we won't have time to, to really focus on all the ideas that are taught here in Hebrews chapter 10. But it, it gives us a, an idea of the supremacy of the priesthood of Jesus and the fact that Jesus' sacrifice has done, done a lot of very significant things for us, once for all, dying for us. And so I want to pick up reading in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 where it says this, about Christ, Hebrews 10.10, by that will we have been sanctified, set apart, we'll talk about that later, through the offering of the body of Jesus. And then what's the next phrase in Hebrews 10.10? Once for all. It, it, it's finished. It, it's complete. And then he goes on to explain in the next few verses the, the repetition of the Old Testament priesthood. You know, Hebrews 10.11 says, Every priest stands and ministering daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never can take away sin. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And so as we talk about the, 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 the priesthood of the believer, we have to understand that that was only possible is only possible because Jesus Christ is, is our great high priest. 
And he accomplished access to God that no longer requires a human priest by offering one final sacrifice that gives us access to God. And so it's amazing when you think about it, and I I hope it's not something that you take for granted. And then the rest of the chapter goes in to describe some of the things then that we get to do as a result of being believer priests through what Jesus accomplished for us. Verse, Verse 19 puts it this way, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's describing what you do. Every time you sing praise, every time you pray, Every time you just simply utter something simple to God, every time you, you, you spend time in the word, every time you are entering into what? What we refer to in the Old Testament as the, the holiest place or the holy of holies. And in the Old Testament scheme of things, only one person got to go in there one time a year. That was the high priest on the day of atonement. That's it. And yet we as New Testament priests, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, get to go in there Every single second of every day if we choose to. That's incredible, folks. Don't get over that. That Jesus made that possible that we can enter into his very presence, into the holiest of holies through Jesus Christ. I love the way Kevin Bowder describes it when he says this. The greatest imaginable intimacy with God is given as a gift to the most ordinary believer. You don't have to be a high priest. You don't have to be anybody special, but you get direct access to God. You get to enter into his presence all of the time. So think about those two implications. Number one, as a believer priest, we have direct access to God. Interesting study is to actually go back to verse five. We won't do that this morning for sake of time, but verse five speaks in terms of our spiritual sacrifices as believer priests. And, and, and that is prayer, that is giving your body, um, Romans 12, 1 and 2 concept. It's the sacrifices of thanksgiving. There are a lot of spiritual sacrifices that are mentioned in the New Testament that are the ways that we exercise that. But one of the, one of the key ones is found in 1 Timothy 2, 1, where it tells us that we are to make intercession for all people, for all men. And that's the concept of a priest. A priest is someone who intercedes for someone else and, and with access to God, they intercede for somebody else. And that is no longer restricted to an Old Testament priest. That is now available to all of us. One of the most important priestly ministries you have is the ministry of prayer. And I know Pastor Tyler is going to unpack that a lot. We're looking forward to that in the morning sessions. But, but the fact that you get to intercede for others, or think about it this way, you get to be a believer priest on behalf of other people. Have you ever thought about it that way? That's the priesthood of the believer, that every single one of us has the privilege of praying for other people. I love love the way way I think it was Pastor Dave this morning that talked about the, the hundreds, if not thousands of people that prayed for him. And what an awesome thing it is for us as the body of Christ to intercede for other people. Intercede for believers, but also intercede for unbelievers. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest ways that you can you can build a bridge into the life of an unbeliever is to get into the habit of saying maybe to your un- unsaved co-worker workers, and they may be totally godless and pagan, okay? But for you to, on a regular basis, say, hey, John, how can I pray for you? I mean, they may be cussing and swearing and carrying on or doing wh- whatever unsaved people do, right? But 
But if, if you're in the habit of every now and then just say, hey, how can I pray for you? You know what you're doing when you do that? You're behaving as a believer priest, but you're also opening a door that may lead to them sharing their heart and then opening a door that may lead to you sharing the gospel as a result of you practicing the privilege of being a priest as a believer in Jesus Christ. We are truly privileged by the Lord and thankful for that. The second thing I want us to make sure we understand is that the priesthood of the believer means this, that there's equality before God. In other words, there's no longer this uh, spiritual pecking order of the priests are up here and the, the laity's down here. And, and sadly, because of the influence of the Catholic Church especially, sadly, I'm not even sure most American, even Baptist, even believers understand that. And that there's a tendency to sometimes for us to even think, well, the pastor, he's closer to God than I am. You know, or my, my, a deacon in my church, he's closer to God than I am. Or the Sunday school teacher, because of the nature of their, their service for the Lord, they're closer to God than we are. No! You can be as close to God as the most holy, most, most, most uh, respectable person, whether that's your pastor or some other person of God that you look up to, you can be as close to God as they can. What an awesome privilege that is as believer priests. Some of you may even think, oh, I can never be as close to God as, and you fill in the blank. That is not true. Yes, you can. And you are as close to God as you try to be. You're as close to God as you want to be. Let me also mention in relationship to this equality before God, what that also gives us is the ability and the responsibility to study the scriptures ourselves and understand what the Bible teaches. Now, I understand the New Testament concept of the pastor-teacher in the New Testament church, and I'm not minimizing that at all, okay? Every one of us ought to regularly be sitting under the ministry of the Word of God from a pastor or teacher who is faithfully teaching the Word of God. That is true, okay? And so I'm not minimizing that at all. But on the flip side, are you exercising your priesthood in terms of your own prayer life, in terms of your own study of Scripture, in terms of your, your own walk with God? Maybe I could put it this way. If the majority of what you get from the Bible is what others teach you, if the majority of what you get from the Bible is what others teach you, you are acting as if they are your priest rather than your pastor. We ought to be digging into the scriptures ourselves as believer priests, coming to convictions and beliefs as a result of our time together in the word. Are you advertising the awesome nature of God by living out this privilege of being a believer priest. Thirdly, the third distinction or the third description of us is this, that we are then separated for the Lord. Again, look back to verse 9 of 1 Peter and what it says there in, in describing our position in Christ. When it, when it says this, 1 Peter 2.9, it says this, it says that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, Peter Harkens back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, 6 describes this in that way. And it's that idea of being holy, which means to be set apart. And holiness in the scripture or sanctification in the scripture is, is always bi-directional. I think that's important for us to understand. Because sometimes it, we, we think that it's holiness as being set apart from the world or being set apart from sin. And it's exclusively that. It is that, but it's actually bi-directional. The concept of holiness and being set apart is, is the idea of being set apart from the world and from sin and to the Lord. 
So it's bidirectional. It's to the Lord. Actually, Weist, the Greek scholar, puts it this way. He says this about holiness. It is set apart for the service of deity. At its simplest idea, it's being set apart for service of deity. And so the second you were saved, that's what God did. He set you apart as his child to, to serve him and to live a life that is distinct from the world. And to, tomorrow night, we're going we're gonna to look into John 17 and, and, and really study some of the practical aspects of that. So let me just very simply maybe describe it and, and, and illustrate it. it. It's this idea of being set apart from something, sin. It's, be, it's the idea of being set apart to something and God. How many of you own a toothbrush? <laughs> please raise your hand. All right. Please, please raise your hand. All right. Good. I'm guessing that it's your toothbrush. Am I right? I mean, I, I'm guessing that you probably don't have like one toothbrush in the bathroom and it's like, hey, we got the family toothbrush here. All right. No, it's not the family toothbrush. Why is that? Because, and this is kind of a crude illustration, because it's been set apart, right? It's been set apart. You know, my toothbrush is set apart for my beloved wife. All right. It's set up, not that she's sinful, okay, or, or bad or anything like that, but you understand that the concept is, and her toothbrush is set apart for her too. So separation, sanctity, holiness is this idea of something that is set apart, but it's set apart from somebody else, something else, but it's set apart to, in this case of the toothbrush, it's set apart to what? To me, but it's also set apart to what? Scrub the toilet? Clean my dirty shoes? No, it's set apart to brush my teeth, right? Okay, I'm making sure you get this, right? But it's that idea of, of something that's set apart from something and set apart to something. That's the idea of sanctification, holiness. And, and we'll look into that a little bit more tomorrow night. But that's what God calls us to. He calls us to distinctiveness from the world, from unholiness, but to him and to his wonderful and marvelous service and the privilege of serving him. We are separated from the world and to the Lord. Two application challenges we have in relationship to that. Number one is we tend to marry, or to, excuse me, to measure holiness in terms of mere externals rather than the heart. You know, one of the things we've been guilty of as independent Baptists and our context of, of living and our context of focusing on holiness, which is good, is that, that we have a tendency to, to, to just think of holiness in terms of how you look on the outside. And the reality of the matter is holiness starts in the heart. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 speaks of loving the world. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And the whole idea there is it's what you love that, that draws you away. It's not just cleaning out the externals, the outside of the heart. Uh, holiness should permeate every facet of our lives, not just what we look like on the outside, not just conformity. Actually, if holiness just changes you on the outside, so you fit into a Christian subculture or a Baptist subculture, you're probably just a well-trained hypocrite. It's good at looking different on the outside, and your heart is very far from God. The second challenge is that we tend to measure holiness by comparing ourselves to others. In other words, how holy are you? Well, look at somebody who's not very holy, right? And if you compare yourself to that person, then it seems like you're, you're, you're pretty holy. You've, you're pretty distinct. You're pretty separated, separated or set apart for God. And I'm 6'5", I'm and so one of the things I've gotten in the habit of people asking me over the years, and actually it's changed about the last 10 years, um, they used to ask me, do you play basketball? 
You know what they ask me now? Did you play basketball? Thanks a lot, right? <laughs> Makes you feel old. Did you play basketball? And, and the answer is, yeah, I played a little basketball. And then they said, well, how good were you? Or what, did you, what level did you play at? All that kind of stuff. And, and so, you know, if they just simply ask the question, well, were you, were you good? Well, it depends on who I compare myself to, right? You know, if I, if I compare myself to a couple fifth graders, I was awesome. I mean, I was so good compared to, as a matter of fact, when Carson was little, one of his little buddies took, took me on, two on one, I beat him, right? I mean, how many of you beat two, two people at once in basketball? I'm good, right? I'm good at basketball. It's all a matter of comparison. <laughs> one time our Christian school got to sing the national anthem at the Cleveland Cavaliers game. And so we got to stand on the sideline but right before the game and out comes this entire Cleveland Cavs team when they were really good. LeBron was on the team at the time. Would I have said at that point, man, I am so good at basketball. I am so good at basketball. No, I would have. I actually did. I felt like, like a little runt <laughs> by comparison to those monsters that were out there that were, they were good at basketball. Don't compare your holiness with other people. First Peter actually says earlier in the text that we're to be holy even as he is holy. And so our holiness is not a matter of measuring up to people around us. It's a matter of measuring up to a God who is exclusively, amazingly, incredibly, gloriously holy. Holy. And so God has separated us for holiness. Don't compare your holiness to others. Don't equate your holiness with externals only. Your identity is holiness, live like it. And when you live that kind of a life, correctly understood and biblically applied, it will advertise the awesomeness of who God is. Advertise his awesomeness. And then fourthly and finally, this morning, we're selected by the Lord, we're privileged by the Lord, we're separated for the Lord, and then ultimately we are owned by the Lord. Look at how verse 9 puts it in the next phrase, that we are his own special people. Verse 10 actually goes on to expand on that idea when it says this. It says, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God. I love that. We are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So that there's this identity of being owned by God. I don't know about you, but I grew up in the King James Version. Do you remember what the King James said? It said that we were peculiar people. I'm afraid that might have led to some wrong practice, perhaps even theology. Actually, in high school, I remember a girl in our youth group who was a peculiar person, and it wasn't because she was a Christian, okay? And I remember her coming back, like we went to public school, I remember her coming back and, and talking about how badly and horribly and, and terribly she was persecuted, and I couldn't help but think to myself, she thought it was because she was a Christian. I think it was because she was weird. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, literally, I mean, she just, she just was really odd on purpose, and then, and then thought it was her Christianity they were persecuting. No, they were making fun of you because you're intentionally being odd. All right? This is not a proof text for, for weirdos or geeks or being odd. All right? The idea of this it, peculiar is the way the King James puts it. The New King James, thankfully, puts it in a little bit different terms when it, when it describes us as being special people. Because the idea of it is that we are owned by him. You know, you know what the word picture that is that's created by the word that's used here? this peculiar, this special people, the word picture that is, that is created is it's as if God has drawn a circle all around me, all around me, and I'm in the middle of the circle, and it's his circle, and he owns me. 
that's an awesome truth. That we are God's special people. We are owned by the Lord. Your life is not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 states it. That our lives are our lives that are owned by God. We are his special possession. He owns you and he calls us his own people. So I think there are at least three, three ideas that, that, again, are implications of what this teaches us. Number one. The first implication is security. You belong to God. You are his, and nobody else can ever change that. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? That we have security in Christ. Number two is identity. Again, this is what we've been talking about this morning, but I, I, I was a nobody. You were a nobody. All of us are a bunch of nobodies on our own. But now we have identity in and through Christ. We are somebody through him. We have worth because of him. And then thirdly, it's also a matter of submission. Submission. He has every right to tell me what to do. I mean, think about it. The whole concept of ownership is owners get to exercise sovereignty over that which they own. Right? Owners get to, adver- get to exercise sovereignty over that which they own. With one exception. Your GPS. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, but it just seems a little odd that I take orders from a, from a device I own. We actually were making our way up here from Ohio where we live and minister, and, and we were going through Chicago. I hate Chicago. And Chicago, has anybody traveled to Chicago in the last six months? I mean, not on 80 below Chicago. That doesn't count, okay? I mean, like through Chicago, through the guts of Chicago. It is a disaster. And so literally, we're driving, and, and the GPS says, oh, alternative route, <laughs> We got an accident ahead. We got, there's, a, there's a 12 minute delay. And then we get on that, that alternative route. Oh, now you need to turn here because there's another 14 minute delay. And then, then you need to turn here because there's another four minute delay. And it was like piling up accident after accident after accident after accident. It took us about an extra hour to weave our way through the back streets and not so nice neighborhoods of Chicago. Why? Because I was listening to something that I owned, which seems a little bit backwards. And in the very same sense, a little bit backwards for us to try to give God orders. For us that that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus to tell God what we're going to do with our lives or tell God what the future should hold or what we want without, of course, submission to his will, that's backwards. Instead, we should yield our lives and live our lives with open hands that say, God, I'm yours I belong to you, fill my hands and fill my life with this beautiful and wonderful and amazing thing called your will for your glory because that's always gonna be best by someone who is the special possession of God Almighty. And that's what you are and that's what I am. And when we live like that, we advertise the awesomeness of who God is. What is the label or the brand of your life today? What is the label or the brand of your life today? Are you a living advertisement for how awesome God is? Are you striving to give your best effort for the one who chose you? Do you take advantage of the privilege of intercessory prayer and even a relationship with God through the word as a believer priest? Are you sincerely striving to live a holy life comparing yourself 
only to God. Can those around you tell how you live that you are God's special possession owned by him? Four things to answer a simple question I like to conclude with in my messages. And that simple question is, so what? So what? Here it is. Number one, gratefully live for the one who chose you. That's so incredible. He chose us. Number two, relish the privilege of direct and immediate communion with God. I think we take that for granted altogether too much. Number three, live a life of holiness with, your, with God as your standard. And then finally, remember who you belong to. You are God's special possession. And in doing so, you will advertise the praises of the one who died for you and gave his life for you, the awesomeness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. So we begin this week thinking about writing for the brand, how grateful we are that through Jesus and what he did is our sacrifice on Calvary, he's given us this identity, this identity for all that have repented and turned to faith in Christ. I pray that we would want to live our lives every day as a reflection of who we are in Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.